Good evening and uh, welcome to this uh, panel on cities and economic development. My name uh, is Enrico Moretti and uh, I am the director of the program on urbanization and infrastructure here at the International Growth Center. Um, the program supports economic research uh, centered on issues of local and regional economic development with obviously focus on uh, developing economies. Um, we focus on urban areas and uh, seek to support research that is innovative, rigorous, but especially policy relevant. And one of the great things about Growth Week is that it brings together researchers uh, and academics on one side and policymakers who uh, are on the field trying to change things. And I think it's this interaction that makes this event unique. Um, urban areas in developing economies offer tremendous uh, promise and equally large challenges. Uh, in most developing countries, urban areas have, have enormous concentrated poverty, uh, lack of basic public services, uh, exposure to environmental pollution, um, and uh, in many cases, the, the, the existence of large slums. But at the same time, urban areas are the most productive part of in most countries. If you, if you draw a map of value added per square mile in any country in the world, what you see is that rural areas are largely flat, very little value added in rural areas. And then once you hit an urban area, you see a huge spike of value added or productivity of labor. In some sense, the urban areas are the real engine of economic growth uh, in, in, in many countries. Historically, if you look at the experience of the US or, or, or Europe, countries didn't get rich until the point where a large fraction of their population moved into urban areas to take advantage of this higher productivity of labor, and this higher value added, and this higher degree of innovation. So in some sense, this dual role of urban area as the most problematic and hardest to manage part of a country and the most productive and uh, most innovative part of a country um, is what we want to talk about today. Um, with me on the stage, I have a very distinguished group of panelists who have direct hands-on experience in trying to manage these challenges. Um, to my left, uh, there is Governor Sergio Cabral, who is the governor of the uh, state of Rio de Janeiro. As governor or one of the most dynamic states in one of those most dynamic countries right now, he um, clearly has much to tell us about how to manage this challenge, how to increase the number of people who can enjoy this higher level of productivity and innovation in urban areas, at the same time, how to manage the challenges of, of dealing with concentrated poverty and um, lack of public services and all the characteristics that, that we associate with, with, with uh, larger metropolitan areas in developing economies. 
Before becoming governor, he was a state representative and then a senator uh, for the state of Rio de Janeiro uh, for 15 years, I believe, from, from 91 to the election to, to governor. Uh, yes, state and uh, senator, yes. Yes, and he was also uh, the president of the state assembly for six, for seven years, uh, I believe. To my left, uh, the Honorable Mr. N.K. Singh is a member of the Upper House in the Indian Parliament. And uh, he has a long-standing interest and vast expertise uh, in matters of local and regional development. He's currently, the, 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 the Indian government uh, is currently working on a new five-year plan for managing urban areas and he's taking an active role. Um, before entering politics, he was an academic economist uh, at St. Stephen College at the University of Delhi. And uh, for three decades, I believe, an official with the Indian uh, Administrative Service. At the other end of the table, Anthony Venables, Professor Anthony Venables, is the BP Professor of Economics at Oxford University. And also, he directs the Center for the Analysis of Resource-Rich Economies. In the past, he was the Chief Economist at the Department for International Development and has worked for the World Bank, the UK Treasury, and many other important venues. He has done extensive research on the issues of local and uh, regional development in fact, is among the fathers of modern economic geography. Uh, some of the key insights in this discipline uh, were developed by, by uh, Tony Venables together with uh, Nobel laureate Paul Krugman um, over the, in the 90s. I've asked the governor to start. He's uh, gonna, okay. gonna give us um, an overview of the promise and the challenges, as you see, the, as you see them, from the perspective of the state of Rio. Um, right after him, uh, Honorable Singh will uh, give us his perspective, uh, with, with obviously a focus on, on the Indian situation. Um, and then, uh, so they're going to talk for about 20 minutes each. Professor Venable will then uh, give us ins his insights or his comments on, on uh, what he has heard. And after that, we'll have a less structured question and answer uh, part where I'm going to ask maybe a couple of questions. Professor Venable may ask a question or so, and then you guys will ask questions. Um, so, okay. Governor, please. Thank you. I, uh, the governor might have to leave a little bit earlier because of an uh, engagement for the Olympic Games, uh, but I think we have plenty of time for, for some questions to him. Okay. Thank you, Enrico Moretti, Professor of Economics at the University of California. Thank you, Mark, Director of International Growth Center, our host. Uh, Mr. Singh, Member of Parliament of India. And Professor Anthony Venables, the University of Oxford. Our Brazilian Ambassador, Roberto Jaguaribe. 
Thank you for coming. Um, students, friends, uh, first of all, I, would, I, would, I want to thank you all of, for the invitation to be here at the London School of Economic, Economics. Sorry. And to be part of this important panel on the future of our cities. I want to say that it's a great pleasure to talk about the special moment that the Rio de Janeiro lives. It's not a surprise that Brazil has achieved an increasingly relevant position in the world. Recently, BBC has released the results of a survey held in more than 27 countries which showed the general perception of Brazil's growing influence in the world. Our country has enjoyed the biggest growth in global popularity. Unfortunately, not because of football. We are now in the sixth <laughs> in the FIFA ranking. We are proud to say that after having lived a long period under authoritarian rule, our democracy is sound. Our institutions work properly. Our justice is sovereign. Our press is free. And there is alternance of power among our political parties. After a period of strong economic turbulence and political reorganizations toward democracy, we managed to overcome inflation and put the de development engine back on track. The federal government adopted a series of macroeconomic policies based on three pillars, namely fiscal responsibility, inflation goals, and float exchange rates. Those policies provide the basic conditions for the social progress we have achieved. Brazil is now the seventh largest economy in the world, with a GDP over $2 trillion, and with the prospect of becoming the fifth largest economy within the next five years. Since 2003, during President Lula's administration, over 40 million people have grown out of poverty, joining the consumer market and helping boost economic growth. Nowadays, Brazilian reserves have reached record levels of over $350 billion, something that is unthinkable of a few years ago. Brazilian public net debt is around 40% of GDP, and the goal is to bring it down to 30% within the next few years. After having suffered so much and for so long, Brazilian society knows that it's vital to beat inflation. A very efficient banking system with strict rules, along with countercycle measures, has helped Brazil minimize the impacts of the worst financial crisis since 1929. Brazil was one of the last countries to be affected by the crisis and one of the first countries to overcome it. It's also worth mentioning that Brazil's GDP grew 7.5% in 2010, and the growth rate for the next years is higher than 4.5%, showing the country's capacity to keep sustained development in the long term. 
The positive picture of the Brazilian economy has repercussions on regional and local levels. It's in this national positive contest that this new chapter in the history of the state of Rio de Janeiro is being written. Among the 27 Brazilian states, Rio de Janeiro is the third smallest, with a territorial area similar to that of Switzerland. It has a population of 16 million inhabitants and a GDP of about $208 billion, which corresponds to a large economy than countries like Chile or Israel. It has a strategic location which allows access to more than 50% of national GDP in a radius of only 500 kilometers. Capital of Brazil for almost 200 years until 1960, Rio de Janeiro has suffered in recent decades a relative decline of its central role in national economy and politics. Currently, however, it's clear that the trend is exactly the opposite. Some new achievements, such as the rapid growth of the country, political integration between the three levels of government, and the new form of state management have enabled a fantastic new cycle of public and private investments in our state. It's worth noting, for example, that Rio de Janeiro has become the first state to receive federal funds among the 27 states of the country. It used it to be in the last position before. Since then, Rio de Janeiro has been the target of great national and international investments. Those investments are transforming the state and bringing back the population's well-known self-esteem. Those changes can be seen especially in the social area, with several investments that have very positive impact on the life of our population. Public security, health, urban mobility, and other areas have been transformed with the new investments. The state is being modernized with infrastructure that's essential to monitor the economic development of Brazil and Rio de Janeiro itself. Some of those works will bring greater comfort and convenience to our citizens and to the Brazilian and foreign tourists who are delighted to visit our state. One of the most emblematic infrastructure works will be the transformation of the port area of the city, the marvelous port sorry, the marvelous port project, Projeto Porto Maravilha, will transform the entire region around the port of Rio de Janeiro into a dynamic, modern, and developed area, which was once the gateway to Brazilians and foreigners in our city. Large investments are made in the, in the region, and that Rondon area will become one of the most value of the city. The experience of London is for us a great source of inspiration. Another great example was the conclusion of the work of the Complexo do Alemão, cable car these years. That region used to be considered one of the most degraded and dangerous of the city. With such a large piece of infrastructure, the people who live there can get around much more quickly and efficiently not to mention the improvement of the area that will be felt by all the inhabitants of the region. 
These public interventions have helped the population increase their self-esteem. Previously, Rio de Janeiro was considered a divided city. Many areas of the city had restricted access and there was a mutual distrust between the inhabitants of different parts of the city. That feeling is changing. We are transforming degraded and devalued areas into urban spacing, providing sanitation, electricity, education, health, mobility. I mean, a whole series of government actions which used to be neglected. As we are a very welcome people, I can't forget to mention the mega events that we will have the honor to host in the coming years. Rio is the city with the most intense schedule of the main events in the decade. We hosted the World Military Games last July with more than 100 nations involved. In 2012, we will receive again the international community for an event called Rio Plus 20, when we will have the opportunity to discuss joint solutions for the main environment challenges. 20 years after the historic UN conference, which brought together over 120 heads of states, the largest conference ever, now as Rio 92. Indeed, our common responsibility in these issues is even more important than and urgent now than it was in 1992. In 2013, we will receive the World Youth Journey which promotes the meeting of millions of young people with the Pope. Earlier in that same year, we will host the Confederations Cup, a major dress rehearsal and a chance to test the venues for the mega event to take place in 2014, the FIFA World Cup. Although that major competitions take place in 12 different cities in all Brazilian regions, Rio de Janeiro, will definitely play a very special role in that event. We will have the honor to offer our legendary Maracanã Stadium as the stage for the final match. The media center for the whole event will also be installed in Rio de Janeiro. The passion Brazilian people have for football will make the 2014 World Cup a very special one. I hope you'll be back in the first place in the ranking then. Wonderful. In 2015, we will commemorate the 450th anniversary of our capital city, the city of Rio de Janeiro. We will do throughout the year with a broad calendar of major festivals that will bring all cariocas to the streets of Marvelous City. In addition, in the, that same year, Brazil and especially Rio will host the Continental Football Championship the Copa America. However, let me highlight the 2016 Olympic and Paralympic Games. We are working hard preparing for that big event which will celebrate the Olympic spirit for the first time in South America. Besides the importance of the Games, it's important to say that our attention goes way beyond the days the event will take place. We are focused on the social and economic legacy which will be left for our population. Huge investments are being made in six strategic areas. Infrastructure, transports, health, security, environment, 
and venues. A top priority for our government, without a doubt, is public security. We see the fight against crime as essential to improving the quality of life of our population and as a decisive factor for economic development in Rio de Janeiro. For the first time, police force have specific targets for reducing crime and our officers are rewarded for achieving those goals. We are managing to reduce our crime indicators substantially. Just one example, in 2010, in 2010, the homicide rate was the lowest of the past 20 years. We have taken another very important step ahead with great national and worldwide visibility, namely the Pacifying Police Unit Project, UPP, in poor communities. Those units aim at reclaiming territories controlled by drug dealers and establishing police units employing officers recently graduated from the police academy, specifically training for the community police job. We have already established several UPPs directly impacting the lives for more than one million citizens, and we have the commitment to bring peace to all communities where there is still parallel control by 2014. It's important to mention that in the same way that President Barack Obama, with his wife and daughters, daughters visited a UPP last March, the Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg, also visited one pacifying unit on June 1st in a community that has a project developed in partnership with British institutions. The Deputy Prime Minister had a chance to see the profound transformation taking place in the lives of thousands of people in Rio de Janeiro. A recent global Metro Monitor survey conducted by this prestigious, prestigious institution, LSE, showed that Rio de Janeiro jumped from the 100th up to the 10th place in the ranking of the most dynamic cities in the world. It was also considered the city which has done the best job facing the recent financial crisis. According to a study conducted by the Federation of Industries of Rio de Janeiro, the state will receive a total of $102 billion of new investments in just three years, from 2011 to 2013, all of them confirmed and already in progress. Two weeks ago, one of the most important publications in Brazil, a global newspaper, had a report based on data by Minister of Development in Indus and Foreign Trade, MIDIC, showing that the state of Rio de Janeiro was the number one destination for domestic and foreign investments in Brazil in 2010, over $18 billion. As far as the education is concerned, there are 18 universities, 21 technological incubators and research centers of excellence in biomedical, electrical, engineering, and oil and gas. There is a density of 50 PAGs per 100,000 inhabitants, the biggest of the major Brazilian cities, which can be compared to European standards. The fast growth, despite positive, presents lots of new challenges. Rio de Janeiro must profit from this special moment 
to develop and bring back to its population the pride of living in one of the most beautiful cities in the world. This is the essence of Rio de Janeiro, a unique place that combines, like no other, great business opportunities and amazing quality of life. Ladies and gentlemen, the government of Rio de Janeiro has a strategy, strategy of economic and social development that includes the necessary participation of private sector growth in various regions of the state. This is a favorable moment for technical cooperation between London and Rio, and also between our universities and institutes of education and research. Finally, don't forget, in the 2012 Olympic Games closing ceremony, London, UK, will pass the flag onto Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. Um, the, the Honorable Mr. Singh will now give us his perspective. Thank you, Enrico. Thank you, Governor Sergio, for this outstanding overview of the achievements of Brazil, with which we, India shares its pride being a partner of your BRIC economies. Yeah. And of course, the extent to which Brazil goes, the BRIC economy goes further. So my congratulations to you, Governor Sergio. <laughs> Thank you, Anthony, for being part of today's discussion uh, with the kind of far-reaching contributions with which all of us are familiar with which you have made in areas of urbanization and challenges connected with it. For someone coming from rural Bihar, I'm hardly the best person to speak about urban India. But I realize, though, that being urbane is different from being urban. What does therefore, since I would not wish to give you an overview of the Indian economy, which I will leave for the question-answer sessions, let me plunge straight into the subject with which uh, I'm expected to deal with, Enrico. What does urbanization imply? What kind of methodologies define urban center? Regrettably, there is a lack of homogeneity. For instance, in Brazil, which governor you know very well, it's strictly based on administrative zones. This is different from China, which is based on a combination of administrative zones and density. Different in the United States, in which it is based on city population. Different in Japan, in which it is based on size and occupational patterns. India, of course, like everything else, it's a hybrid story. Uh, a hybrid story of defining urbanization 
where the population exceeds 5,000, where the density is more than 400 per square kilometers, and for strangely, and I don't know why the females are left out, the male population, 75% of them, must be in non-agricultural uh, activity. So that's India's definition of uh, what urban centers are. In terms of size and exponential growth, to give you just one illustration in terms of figure, in 2001, we had an urban population of 285 million people living in 5,200 urban conglomerates. Just in a period of 10 years, this 285 million in 2011 has become 400 million and with 7,900 urban conglomerates. And expectations are that by 2030, in India's population of 1.4 billion at that time, 600 million people would be living in urban conglomerates. The sort of, therefore, the kind of challenge which comes from this sort of mind-boggling numbers. It is already an engine of growth, and although right now only one-third of the population live in urban areas, two-thirds of India's GDP comes from urban areas, and 90% of all revenues come from urban areas. The likely change in the population composition is not merely a change in demographic relocation. It is recognizing that it is a structural transformation. And the most important thing which we recognize as part of our 12 five-year plan, which we'll just adopt on the 15th of October for India's economic strategy from 2012 to 2017, we are assigning very high priority to problems of urbanization, recognizing that you cannot redress poverty unless the issues of urban poor are not dealt with in an isolated manner, but as part of the integrated whole in managing urbanization in a sensible way. This, of course, requires fundamental mindset changes. Mindset changes moving away from rural to urban. What does this kind of mind-boggling number and challenges mean in terms of India's problems of urbanization. I would say that there are huge opportunities. There are, of course, huge challenges. And if I were to classify them very roughly, I would say there are 10 important challenges. First and foremost, the challenge of a vision. A vision which factors in not today, not yesterday, but tomorrow. Factors in the inevitable consequences of growing interdependence factors in the vast amount of internal migration which will take place. Recognizing that multiplicity of agencies will hinder a more cohesive policy. Recognizing as part of the planning process that land use and zoning can excessively restrict the availability of housing and land, particularly for the poor. And recognizing that what we need to focus on is not mere renewal of old cities, but for new cities of today and new cities of tomorrow. So that's challenge one, planning, visionary planning. Challenge two, housing. And housing, there are complex issues. Each country has their own laws. On India, looking at the fact that we have one 
sixth of humanity, but regrettably one twentieth of the territorial space. There's enormous pressure of population on land. So I think that we need to have our housing plan imaginatively, in which the floor space index, as is known, has to be done in a particular way. We need to do away with outmoded rent control arrangements, which reduce the availability of housing to the poor. We need to ensure the availability of macrofinance, microfinance, and of course, mortgage arrangements for improved housing. We need to grow vertically and not necessarily horizontally. That's the big challenge when it comes to the second big challenge. Third, the challenge of service delivery. It's unclear lines of accountability. Too many agencies, too many organizations, not clear who is responsible for what. How does it have a more cohesive line of accountability pattern in improving delivery services? And to look beyond mere physical infrastructure, it's easy enough to do physical infrastructure, but we require soft infrastructure in terms of the availability of education, of health, of housing, of sanitation. Challenge four, that we need to fulfill the basic needs of the urban poor and the multiple deprivations they have in terms of water, sanitation, health, education, social security, and an acceptable environment in terms of ambient air quality. This is easier said than done. Dealing with the urban poor as part of an isolated problem will not do. They must become part of your integrated holistic plan. The fifth challenge, of course, is that we live in challenging times. and Everybody now talks about environmental sustainability. Will we be able to plan the cities of tomorrow in a manner which ensures environmental sustainability and ensures that modern technology is used, ensures that the carbon footprint which this kind of compulsions of urban, urbanization will, will bring upon us is something which is acceptable. The sixth challenge, of course, and should have come first, but I have put it as number six, is a challenge of financing. Financing this kind of an expansion on the urban, what will it cost? Now, on the back of the envelope calculation, it looks as though in the next 20 years, India will require $1 trillion for the infrastructure and assets, which we need to invest for the newer infrastructure, and will require another half a trillion dollar for operation maintenance and renewal of old cities. So one and a half trillion dollars in the course of the next 15 to 20 years. From where is the money going to come? Well, first and foremost, it must come from government outlay. Currently, India only uh, spends 0.7% of its GDP on the urban sector. We have plans to increase the 0.7% to around at least 2%, if not, if not more, in the course of the next five years. We need to unlock the embedded values in the land and use land in a more imaginative way. We need to bring about greater efficiencies in the utilization of land patterns. We need to have an intelligent setting of user charges, property taxes, and have higher floor space index availability. We need to foster four PPPs. It's normally public-private partnership with three Ps 
But we are adding a fourth one. People-public-private partnership. What does people-public-private partnership mean? It means the participation, particularly of the poor, in the overall conception, in the overall design, and in the overall implementation. So we, I believe that a basket of these three or four aspects can bring about innovative financing to meet the challenge of $1.5 trillion requirement which we need. The seventh challenge is, in my view, the challenge of governance and regulatory framework. What does this mean? Now, India passed something called the 74th Constitutional Amendment Governor. You must be wondering how many times you have amended the Constitution, but we have. Uh, the 74th Constitutional Amendment gave enormous powers to urban local bodies and to the lower, lowered institutions in terms of what they could do and assigned 34 functions which they are obliged to perform. Now, regrettably, these powers, administrative and financial, have yet to be transferred to these urban local bodies and we need to accelerate that process. Similarly, we need to accelerate the fact that state governments, and just like Brazil, we have a federal government, the state governments give enough autonomy to these urban local bodies and to local institutions in their overall functioning. We need to ensure that as far as central government is concerned, and we saw some fascinating projections the other day, day for yesterday, I thought, on the to total number of bodies and organizations and institutions which deal with the issues of urban planning. They are far too many to lose the count. How does it bring about a cohesive kind of a regulatory framework which enables coordinated action? Eighth, how to genuinely make urban economies genuine engines of growth. This is, again, easier said than done. How does it inculcate skills? Skills in terms of emerging demands. The demands of yesterday will be very different than demands of tomorrow. One has to only read the latest London Economist to find out the old jobs are over, the new jobs are in the offing. So inculcation of vocational skills to meet the job requirements of tomorrow. To launch a production program for, for its manufacturing sector, for innovation in terms of science and technology, for making urban sector centers the educational hubs of tomorrow. And the ninth challenge is, Governor, you were right. Brazil has many fascinating advantages. But you know, we have also launched a campaign called Incredible Indi India Campaign, which many of you may have watched on the television. This is to invite you people to come to India and to look at Incredible India in its multiple diversity of culture, education, and the sort of what India has to offer. How to make these cities not merely livable, but to make the cities something which is an attraction to foster tourism which is also one of the things which you want to do. And the tenth challenge, I believe, is how does one manage the transition of regional doing away with growing regional inequalities? Parts of India are growing at maybe 12%. My own state, which has come from a rock-bottom start, to now grow at 12%. But it is a latecomer. Is it fair, in term, moral terms, and what percentage of national resources should be garnered by a few metro cities compared to these resources being spread to the more backward regions, 
to the backward states, which have lagged behind the development curve. Is there an ethical principle which should guide public investments, which enables the fostering of greater <coughs> regional equality and a greater harmony in the kind of diversity of territory which India represents? These moral and ethical choices will have to be made when we deal with the allocation of limited financial resources. These challenges, in my view, would need to be overcome. I agree entirely with something that Aristotle had said long ago, that the great cities of the world may not necessarily be the most populous cities of the world. This is true in more sense than one. But at the end of it, I think cities have always been far places of civilization from where light and heat radiates into darkness. I believe that unless these 10 challenges are effectively overcome, we will have enveloping darkness, shrinking light, and the radiation having been belittled. India has enormous demographic challenges of poverty, enormous challenges of growth, enormous challenges of being able to overcome some of the most important social inadequacies in terms of a more harmonious development. Considering the fact that there's 600 million people in India who live in urban areas by 2020, there is an enormous challenge and responsibility which has been cast upon us by the compulsions of demography and by the compulsions of history. But I'm optimistic that we will overcome these challenges and that the next five years will see a fundamental change for the better. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Singh. Um, we now pass the microphone to Professor Venables for his thoughts on these two um, speeches and the general theme of cities and economic development. Good, thank you. Uh, let, me, let me start by, by congratulating uh, the previous two speakers on really uh, stating very clearly uh, the challenges uh, faced in urbanization uh, and giving, giving such an insightful overview of the ways uh, that some of the world's major cities uh, are, are starting uh, to address these challenges. I think it falls to me to try and connect some of that discussion with some of the research literature and some of the way uh, academics think about this. So I'm not sure I've got a very easy task here. And I suspect I'm going to be asking more questions. Well, I know I'm going to be asking more questions uh, than, than giving answers. But let me say a little bit about how, how I think about the role of cities in development and how that fits together with some of the challenges that have been raised and some of the experiences uh, that we've heard about. I guess when I think about cities, I see their, their, their importance, their fundamental importance in two dimensions. 
One dimension is that cities are the ladder for individuals, families, successive generations uh, to lift themselves out of poverty uh, into the modern labor market, uh, into education, uh, and in, into the modern economy. Uh, the role of that, I think, is fantastically important, and I'll say a little bit about, more about it in a moment. The other role of the city is complementary to that, but it's focusing not so much on households as on firms and on the productive side of the economy. Cities, uh, we know, are areas of high productivity, or can be, not necessarily are, I should say. Cities can be areas of high productivity, fantastic job creation, uh, investment by firms, private sector activity. But of course, uh, that's a can be, it's not automa automatic. Lots of, uh, there are lots of challenges, lots of decisions uh, that have got to be taken on the way. So when I think about cities, I think you know, the challenge is, are they meeting one, hopefully both, of those two objectives, creating the ladder for individuals and families uh, to migrate, to move, to improve themselves over generations, and creating the environment for business uh, to, to, to create jobs. Let me say a little bit, about, a little bit more about this ladder for, for, uh, for households uh, and families. Let me start on that by, by recommending a book that I just read a couple of months ago. I think it was published in March this year. Uh, a book by someone called Doug Saunders called, called A Rival City. It's really very, very vivid portrayal of the migration process uh, and the fantastic impact that has on, the, on people's lives and then the transformative process uh, on society. And of course the migration process is from the village to the slum, to the peripheral uh, you know, favela, whatever, uh, on the edge of town. And we tend to think of favelas, slums, you know, negatively. But the book really takes the message very, very strongly that the slum, the favela, is a step uh, up the ladder. It's a rung on the ladder. Uh, so it's fantastically important to get those environments working well. It's very good on thinking about the importance of networks, social networks for migrants as they come in, uh, getting jobs, uh, education, security, all the things that enable individuals in the slum, in the favela, to start accumulating assets, accumulating human capital, education for themselves, to an astonishing degree accumulating property, I mean a fact that I didn't know, actual ownership of property in, 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 in these slum areas, uh, the proportion of people actually owning an area of land is probably greater in that area of the city uh, than in other areas. Uh, so it's the environment in which people can, can, can progress their families, can, can save, can accumulate, can make progress. How do cities make that work? Yeah, what, what can policy do? Um, well, policy can be very, very destructive uh, of that ladder. We know that uh, you know, policy can say, well, the slum, the favela, is really, you know, it's untidy, it's useless, what we're going to do is bulldoze it, right? Uh, a bad strategy. We know that policy can fail to provide security uh, in those environments, um, in which case that accumulation process uh, that uh, building the family uh, progress uh, isn't going to take place. And of course there is a chapter in the book on Brazil uh, and the experience of Rio in bringing security uh, to these regions, uh, to these areas. 
uh, and enabling this process to really work, I think, much, much better in, as I understand it, working rather well uh, in Brazil now in a way that it probably <coughs> or certainly hadn't uh, in recent years. So real congratulations to, to the city mayors and to the government of, of Brazil in, in creating the environment where that, that ladder process for bringing migrants into the modern economy uh, seems to be working well. Of course, there are chapters on India as well, where the same, same thing is, is very important, the slum uh, as, as the transition process. So I'd recommend that to you. The other criterion I use, the other criterion I think about is the one that economists have thought about much, much more. Um, that is to say, the firm side, the city as a productive business environment where investors want to invest, uh, where productivity is high, uh, jobs, jobs are created. The experience uh, of Rio and of Indian cities is very important, very instructive there. You know, obviously, Rio uh, suffered a negative shock, you know, the bad experience of losing capital status, having a major city, Sao Paulo, uh, you know, clo close to it, uh, taking up that activity, uh, but seems to have uh, countered that shock perfectly well uh, and is attracting the investment and uh, providing that productive uh, business environment. But let me probe a little bit further on that. The research base tells us that on average cities are productive, that every doubling of population raises productivity by 4% or whatever the, the current research number is. I believe, believe it's about that. But of course, it's not automatic. There's a huge amount of heterogeneity uh, in, in cities. And difficult investment decisions are required uh, to make that work. And here there's an area where I think economic research really can bring a good deal more uh, to the table. Understanding what it is that makes you know, some cities generate that productivity, that high productivity, and others not. It's got a lot to do with, with the vision, the planning, the coordination uh, that, uh, that we heard about uh, in India. It's got a lot to do with infrastructure investments. And there's a real research agenda there for economists, I think understanding uh, the benefits, the real effects of urban infrastructure investments. Um, some of you will have heard me before going on about how I think as a profession economists tend to undervalue uh, infrastructure, transport investments, uh, particularly in the urban context where I think there are huge spillovers, uh, huge benefits for making cities work better in these, in these areas. So understanding the things that make cities productive the business environment, the governance, as we heard about in the case of India, uh, the infrastructure investments. And of course, one of the key challenges in doing this, uh, as we heard in India, was finance. It's all very well to say the benefits of infrastructure investment are huge, but uh, someone's, someone's got to pay for it. Now, this is the point, of course, where I'm rather dissatisfied uh, with the rest of the panel. Uh, the mayor of Shanghai should have been here as well, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> Um, how do we pay uh, for infrastructure investments? I think this really is one of the big challenges for, for policy and research. We know that when development, infrastructure, road development, rail developments take place, there's a huge appreciation uh, in land values. 
some societies have been able to successfully tap that to finance uh, the infrastructure. In Britain, we try to do it in a rather ad hoc, unsatisfactory way. You know, we build Crossrail, this new rail link for whatever it is, 15 billion, and the Chancellor goes to the City of London with a begging bowl and says, please put a few pounds, a few, a few tens of millions of pounds in uh, to pay for it. But of course, in China, they do it rather more successfully. Um, land is owned by the state, more or less. Um, <laughs> Uh, existing occupants move out with more or less compensation. But the point is, uh, there's a huge, huge uh, capital gain uh, that is generated by the city, by the infrastructure improvement. So really understanding ways uh, to tap that, to meet the financing challenge, uh, I think is fundamentally important. And we've got you know, real, real extremes uh, in, in the world economy. We've got China you know, probably, over in, probably doing it too successfully and vastly over-investing uh, in infrastructure uh, at the city level funded by this. Uh, but other cities, certainly some Indian ones, I think, where none of that, uh, that, that, that capital gain is being extracted by society or by the city uh, for investment purposes, uh, but going to private individuals. So, um, I've got real scraps of paper here. I was trying to jot things down as we went through. Obviously, I've barely scratched the surface of the things, uh, of, of, of the real set of challenges uh, that, that were raised uh, in, the, in the Indian case. But I think it is an area where there's a real real synergies between the research community and the policy community here. Uh, the research community has done a good job in drawing attention to the dynamic role of cities, productivity, engines of growth. Um, but of course, all cities are different. Understanding the difference, thinking about the details of the policy environment, the institutions, how the police work to generate security. There's a level of detail that I'm not sure economists at least have risen to yet, but questions that I think are researchable, but we need to, to be fed the reality by talks like this and then think how to shape research uh, that is useful and productive for that. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. These were three uh, very insightful in contributions. Uh, I want to build on Tony's remarks uh, to start asking a couple of questions to our policymakers, uh, Governor Cabral and Honorable Singh. Um, possibly the most important development in the global economy of the past 15 years has been the rise of countries like Brazil and India and China. Um, finally, after many decades, they're finally reducing the difference with the US and Europe. US and Europe haven't really experienced much growth for 10 years. The US is pretty much stuck, and most European countries are not any better. By contrast, India, Brazil, China, and many others, Turkey and, and even some African countries, are fast reducing the gap. So what's happening is what economists call convergence. 
which is something that economic model have long predicted. The distance between the latecomers and the front runners it is finally shrinking. Um, but at the same time, if you look at within country, the distance between cities within many developing countries, it's actually increasing. In China, you have cities like Shanghai that are not, that have a GDP per capita not unlike the one in Italy, that have probably better infrastructure than in Italy, probably, actually definitely better um, education uh, as measured by international tests. But then you have cities in uh, Western China that are barely moving. Uh, coastal cities in China are growing at incredible rates. Uh, interior cities in China are not. The same is happening in, in, in Brazil. There are certainly bright spots, and we've seen the, we have experienced the, 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 the experience of Rio, but there are other parts of the country that are, that are growing less. Um, I suspect the same is happening in China. And by the way, the same is happening actually within the US. You, you have cities that are, uh, that, that are adding good jobs, adding good, good uh, adding human capital and productive employers, and cities are more and more lagging behind. Uh, so on one end you have places like San Francisco, on the other hand you have places like Flint, Michigan. These are like as far as, you know, they're almost two opposite universe. So I think what's happening, you have this remarkable convergence across countries with poor con developing countries fast catching up, but within country you have a tremendous amount of divergence with cities that started off with, with strong economic fundamentals becoming even stronger, and cities that becomes even weaker. Cities that start weak and becomes even weaker in relative terms. And so to me, the, the fundamental question for when, when we think about regional economic development, there, there are basically two fundamental questions. First of all, what makes the difference? Governor Cabral has proposed investment in infrastructure as a, as a key to success. He, he, he has talked about mega events. Um, possibly, the security factors. In some sense, are the policy makers different in, in the weak cities and in the good cities? Or is there, is there something else? For example, a lot of the research in based for, for, for the US points to the role of a strong, um, a large number of educated workers as one of the fundamental, the key predictors of economic success of cities in the long run. And if so, then what's the role for, for, for policy? Is, is what, what, what's the right mix of public and private policy? Uh, obviously, if we're talking about reducing crime, there's no question that that belongs to the public sector. But if we're talking about um, generating human capital, it's, it's, it's not obvious. What's, what's the role of, of the city government in training workers or, or trying to attract uh, better educated uh, workers uh, or trying to attract jobs that then attract better educated workers, like high human capital jobs. 
So that's, that, to me, in the face of this growing divergence between weak cities and, 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 and strong cities within, within each country, that, to me, is the first, one of the first fundamental questions. The second one is what to do about the weak cities. Okay, so Rio has been successful in growing faster than many other parts. And, but what do you do with the other parts, with the flints of Brazil or, or of India? Do you just let them go and hope that the residents just reallocate and move to the fast-growing cities? Or is there a role for policies that target the cities to try to reduce the gap between the winners and the losers? It almost looked like, you know, as, as countries are all opening up to, to this new global economy, there are cities that are well prepared for this race and are taking full advantage of this. And then there are other cities that are not, that in fact are, are falling farther behind. And uh, to me, a, fundament, a second fundamental question is what to do about the losers. And economists have mixed views about this. On one hand, you want to help struggling parts of the country. Uh, on the other hand, it's not clear that's the best use of resources. If a city is not productive, maybe it has lost its competitive advantage. Do we really want to think of effectively taxing the rest of the country, the productive part, in order to help that part? It could backfire. You could have uh, large losses in, in efficiency. On the other hand, you, you obviously cannot just live in entire community uh, die the way that Flint or, or Detroit are dying in, 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 in the U.S. So in some sense, the, the same things that arise when you think about the success stories in, the U in places like the U.S. are, I think, very much apply to countries like, like Brazil and India. They are growing very, very fast, but at, at a very unequal pace. So um, I believe you have your time with time. So. If you have, uh, maybe we should start with you, uh, and then uh, we're going to uh, move to Honorable Singh. Uh, first of all, I'd like to, to say I, I trust, I believe in only one way, democracy. Without democracy, without free society, it's impossible to build a really uh, a good society. That's the point in many countries, in Asia, in Africa, in part of Europe, in part of Americas. Uh, in Brazil, we, we got the democracy. I'm a journalist. My father's journalist. I visit my father when I was six years old in the jail because he's he is journalist and he had a, a newspaper against the military government. Then uh, we discuss economy without the perspective of democracy. For me, it's, a, it's not all the view. It's my first point. I believe in the free society. Second, after we got the free society in the end of the 80s, 
we uh, got in the Brazilian society uh, agreement, all the parties, all the society, against the inflation and the macroeconomic fundamentals during the 90s. The beginning of this century, we elected a leader, uh, President Lula, from the Union, and we respected all the economic fundamentals and, and make growth in the economy, but with distribution the rich. Then, uh, in opposite, which you told, real grow, grew and is growing, yes, but uh, in the last decade, Northeast, the poor part of the state, the, the country, uh, center of the country, center west, Northeast and the north, the three, we have five regions in Brazil. South and the southeast, um, before almost 70% of the GDP. Nowadays, 62, 60. Because in the last three years, four years, five years, northeast, north, and the center, west, west center, grew more than uh, rich parts. It's not true to the uh, in opposite if you told in Brazil we we, we, we have got uh, how can I say equilibrium uh, balance. balance between the regions and uh, we have in Brazil President Lula put and President Dilma the first woman elect in the history of Brazil by the people uh, we have a some wonderful policies for to the distribution of the rich. One is my house, my life, minha casa, minha vida. In the last three years, we for the from the zero to ten minimum salaries. Salaries. We built one million house and. Uh, in we, President Dilma just launched the second phase, the second chapter. We will build two million houses, mainly for the people, the poor people, zero, three minimum salaries. But can Is I ask you a question? Of course. Are these redistributive policies targeting poor households or poor regions? But all the country. So they're nationwide. Nationwide. They're not no. focused on nationwide. Of course, you have uh, a, a level of uh, uh, for the because there is a I, I can't explain in detail here, but it's a very smart program because of course the, 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 there is money fund money from federal government and uh, with the the private companies and the federal money, federal government put the money until zero three. There is subsidies, subsidies, and uh, for the companies, the cities put the lands. Do you know? 
in the, the state, like our state, put the lands or the infrastructure, and you put reurbanizations areas, and took the, this land, the people in the bad conditions, and put in the good conditions areas. And the, the, the people love this, 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 this program. And another program is uh, PACI, Programa de Aceleração do Crescimento. It's a Growth Acceleration Program. It's almost uh, 500 billion reais, more than 350 billion dollars in infra infrastructure, but not only the infrastructure port, airport, uh, included this part, but in the poor areas in reurbanizations. We have a fantastic case in Rio. With Complex do Alemão, I said. Complex do Alemão lived 100,000 people. It's pacifying, and we put there 600 million reais, around 400 million dollars in many investments, huge investments. Uh, but another, uh, another uh, communities, slums, or former slums, change uh, in new areas in the urbanization. But in Brazil, I would like to say, we have, uh, in this moment, all the country is growing. We have, of course, problems with balance. You are from Italy. You know, north of Italy is different than the south of Italy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> then uh, we have uh, we have of course difference uh, in many regions, but in this moment is we have fighting against with good political uh, policy. Another policy, I think, one of the more largest in the world, is the bolsa familia, family. You know, is a good program. Is a family financial aid yes uh, do you have a program for the poor people uh, more than 50 million families in Brazil we, we are nowadays 190 million people more than 50 million and in this moment Juma launched the new chapter is Brazil no uh, without uh, miseria poverty, poverty. Is the, is the challenge and uh, in the next three years. In the states, but plus with another money in the hand of the federal government and the state put, for example, in my case, Juma launch uh, in the program of Bolsa Familia, the, 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 the poverty, the extreme poverty, the 70 reais per capita, is uh, almost $40 per capita. Receive a plus money with program of education, etc., etc. In our case in Rio, because we have a, another level of uh, <coughs> life, we put 100 reais per capita, like $70 per capita. And you complete the federal government program, do you know? And uh, we started a few months ago, it's a big success. And we have in Rio, it's a very important for the cities, for the, the professor to, told about the mobility 
the quality, where you, where do, where you live. And uh, we have a problem of the mobility. It's a strong problem, unique in, this, in Brazil. This is our government, the state government. Is the uh, we we subsidize sub, 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 the mobility and the many kinds of uh, transport, transportation, subways, trains, bus in the twenty cities in the metropolitan area, because this land. One of the reasons of Islam is that too expensive mm. to get a work, mm. uh, to get a job, uh, if you live far, do you know? Because the people live far, and you, I, need a, 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 I need work, and it's so expensive to the, to, to, to. And uh, with this program, in the 20 cities, we spend around uh, $250 million per year in the trained cities. It's around how many people we, we, we get in the village union. One, one million people. is amazing. Nowadays, the last uh, finger, Rio de Janeiro metropolitan area has the, 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 the good performance um, the employment in Brazil, the, all the metropolitan areas. Okay, um, so if I understand correctly, in Brazil, the federal system does obviously generate a lot of redistribution, mm -hmm. but it's not, Only it doesn't the have- the federal it, government. It, uh, yeah, the redistribution from the central to the, to, the, yes. to the localities, but it doesn't explicitly target poor area. It redistributes in favor of poor individuals, which happen to be more yes. likely in poor areas. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Um, did you want it to? Yeah, you want me to, yeah. uh, me to respond uh, to your questions. First, I think you have a very interesting question which you posed. Uh, what entices people to cities? What is the attractive power which some cities have which attracts more people to that city as compared to another? It's really quite a complex sociological question. In India, perhaps, as some of the Indians know very well, that perhaps our most attractive city is Mumbai. What attracts people to Mumbai? Well, we're surprised to say it's Bollywood. People watch cinema, and they realize the fulfillment of the dream, partly, that it's called the Bombay dream, that maybe if you went to Bombay and lived there, you may enact a life which you see only in well-removed. So I think that it's a complex set of uh, sociological, psychological factors which draw people to some city and which uh, uh, inhibits people from coming there. But I think a more important question, uh, since examples cannot be replicated, is what should be done to prevent the growth of divergences in asymmetric patterns and that while the world moves towards convergence, do countries move towards divergences? I think this is an issue which I tried to address in one of the challenges as far as India was concerned. Let me mention that in addition to the anti-poverty programs, and let me compliment the governor that the 
Balza Familia program is one of the most creative and innovative programs which we are trying to do in India. But I think it requires conscious policy intervention. We have some conscious policy interventions. What are they? 11 states in India have been identified which have lagged behind the national curve. And I think in terms of fiscal policy, in terms of the total devolution which they get, and in terms of the kind of tax breaks on income tax, customs, VAT, and a whole host of stuff, these have been given tax breaks to enable private investment to come in. So I think that it requires, the short point is, requires state intervention, a combination of factors which attracts private investment to those states through conscious policies of uh, fiscal and conscious policies in terms of greater central outlays. So I think that this is something which, which we are acutely aware of because growing regional disparities and how to ameliorate them is one of the challenges which you want to address in the next few years. Thank you. Uh, thank you both. I think it's now time to, uh, to your for your questions. Um, there's a microphone that is going around. So. Yes, I mean, my question is uh, more related to see the city in the, in the prospect of region. In Europe, we start talking about ecosystem. This means uh, we should not see the city only from economic point of view or grow. You need to see the city more from the integration side and knowledge side of the economic, social, and environment and ecology, but not just as a city. See in a more, let's say, ecosystem at a regional level, because the city is depending from the region, and vice versa. So my question is, maybe we need to know more the region, to interconnect the region with the city in an intelligent way, and then you start to planning the strategies together with the region. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take a couple of questions. Do you want to answer directly? No. Let's take a couple of questions, and then, and please direct your question to one of the panelists. Yeah, thank you for the presentation. Um, I have a question, yeah, mainly for uh, Honorable Singh. Which is the relation between uh, cities, investment in cities, and, and urbanization and inequality? In the sense that it could seem a banal question, but it's puzzling to me how, uh, in a in a really in an equal when you as a policymaker you have a. a in a really uh, unequal society, a pressure for immediate consumption. And for, so the public spending, it's really a criteria uh, with which the, the, the population will, will judge you. And infrastructure is something that you can really touch, really tangible, and you basically work to better off a part of society, but the other part of society could you know, disagree with that. So my question is, yeah, which is how, how this relationship between cities and inequality works, which is the direction, and in terms of uh, political assets, I agree that democracy, so this is a provocative question. Democracy is the best political asset to do this uh, political situation, framework to do this uh, investment if there is social cohesion. But what about if there is not social cohesion, if there is quite fragmented? Do, uh, do the policymaker will have the time to survive to the first investment before the next election? Thanks. I think we should start answering this too. 
uh, whoever wanted. So, uh, want me to uh, respond to uh, the first question first. I think, uh, how do you connect the in terms, since really it's not city per se, but it is a wider ecosystem, how will connectivity uh, dramatically improve? Well, to some extent, I think the fact of the increase in internet connectivity in India and in terms of what the new information technology offers is already making location increasingly irrelevant in terms of the disaggregation of economic production for optimization of gains. But I agree that connectivity not only in terms of uh, information technology, physical connectivity, transport connectivity and others would widen uh, 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 and the ecosystem in terms of a larger area coming into the regional vortex of growth. The second question is a more difficult one because governments must first be in power before they can change. And I think I entirely agree with Governor Sergio when he said that it is a power of democracy. If you ask me the question, and I posed it myself, that is it morally correct for a very large public outlay to go into the metropolitan cities? Let's say we had this, uh, recently the Asian Games in Delhi. Huge public investment went into Asian Games. There was a wide national debate. Should Delhi get such a large proportion of public outlay compared to many other areas which were denied this benefit? But I think ultimately, it is the politics of the process which cannot be divorced from the politics of resource allocation. It is done for the way in which decisions are taken in most democratic societies. And I will agree with you that social cohesiveness is something which needs to be obviously maintained in this process. And that, I think, is something which will be called to test when the next time around you begin to seek the votes. But I think in general, uh, I would say that a perfect solution, when you have a perfect convergence between the maximum spread of social benefit in the pattern of allocation of resources, is perhaps an idle dream to chase. About the eco-cities in environment, uh, we have a uh, very, very exciting experience in Brazil with the biofuel, uh, it's the ethanol. It's an amazing experience with the sugar cane. It's a fantastic solution. And all the car makers in Brazil produce with uh, your car that flex food is incredible. In Rio, we have another alternative uh, with gas is so uh, popular. Uh, we have in Brazil uh, almost 1.5 million cars by gas and more than uh, the half in, in, in real estate. And uh, the, we have uh, the next month, Monday, I will sign a new law to, because the, the Minister of Environment, my former secretary, the, the woman, and then now my Secretary of Health, the Environment is the former Minister of Environment, <laughs> and we have a good connection in this. this, <laughs> this. And then you signed the, 
the law to cut to, to cut all the tax for the uh, so, solar energia solar solar energy and eolica yeah. wind, wind energy and to, to improve this this alternative the matrix of um, energy in Brazil is in Rio because Rio from oil and gas we have we produce eight percent of oil and gas and until the uh, solar or we have a the unique uh, or the largest urban forest urban forest in the world um, and I invite you to come to the Rio Plus Twenty. Okay, well, there's... Oh, there's my God, I, I have uh, another meeting. Yes. And um, if you allow, for me, do you have some questions? Ah, uh, yeah? Please. Three? Okay. You pick it. Sorry, because I have to... Please. So a couple of questions for the governor, then the governor will leave. We're going to have time for another few questions uh, and for, for honorable things. Uh, as an economic engine. So you already mentioned about the Manaus Airport project. Manaus, right? Manaus. Yeah. So if you are considering uh, privatizing this airport, uh, to, uh, what is, would it be the criteria for adopting some private company like uh, besides that security issue? And uh, if you are uh, preparing this devel uh, airport development, not just for this mega event, what would be another criteria to considering picking up some private company when you have some bidding process? Yes. Yes, uh, the President Dilma launched the three airports in this moment. For yes, the, uh, yes. You know? Yes. Besides Manaus, you have two or three airports uh, considering some PPP as a PPP project. I think no. in this moment, no. But Manaus uh, in Amazonas. Before, before no. 13, 2013, right? I don't know because uh, in this moment the federal government launched for Brasilia and two airports in São Paulo because it's so busy, 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 and uh, and uh, the federal government has invested a lot into to, um, more terminals and the concession, and uh, and she said. President Dilma, the next step is Rio de Janeiro and uh, Rio de Janeiro and other cities, not Manaus, no. Belo Horizonte? It's another city. Natal. Okay. I think Natal is a special uh, experience. Uh, open the, the concession, you, you are right, but apart. And this program is Sao Paulo, two airports, Brasilia, and next year, Rio de Janeiro, and another city, I, I, I think it's Belo Horizonte, the ambassadors, Belo Horizonte. Manaus, I, I, I never heard about Manaus, but I agree, I need that, I think what, uh, uh, the airport is not a busy for the government, all the, all the, all the countries, or many countries, are changing for the private sector to management the, the airport. The government has to con control 
the space, the control, is another control, but not the, the airport. Airport is service, not to Brazil. The federal government put uh, uh, so energy in airports. I, I, I have worked against this vision may, uh, since a uh, long time. And Manaus is a wonderful capital of Amazon, beautiful. It's the middle of the forest, the, the airport. <laughs> so. Okay, we are running out of time. I will say two more questions and then we adjourn. Uh, <laughs> Hi, um, this is a question for the governor of Rio again. Um, there ha uh, this uh, Mia Casa Mia Vida sounds like a great project, and you mentioned that one of the problems for the favelas, or one of the causes for it, is actually the transportation factor. You can't spend four hours every day and half of your salary on a bus going to work every day, so you live in a favela, which is closer to the city center. Um, there have been other attempts uh, for public incentives for living, like a City of God, I'm sure. Cidade de Deus. Yeah. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have seen the movie, and the end result wasn't quite what, what was planned in the beginning. This was uh, outside of the city, and again, transport, there wasn't really anything to do there, and uh, well, it didn't turn out like it was planned. And how is Mia Casa Mia Vida different? Uh, yeah, good question. Uh, in Cidade de Deus, City of God, is another city of God nowadays. Uh, <laughs> President Barack Obama, the first family from the United States, visited with me a few weeks ago, a few months ago, March. And they loved it because uh, he, he, he knew about the city of God. He, 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 he watched it, the, the movie. And there's a new atmosphere. The pacifying, we have a UPP there, but not only UPP. When uh, we enter with the security, we enter with education, uh, uh, school for new skills, because Brazil needs uh, not only graduate PhDs and master, but skills, the professionals for the, we have schools there, uh, regular schools there. Incredible, in Cidade de Deus, in City of God, uh, after UPP, the city, the Secretary of Education, we have the, the largest uh, uh, structure of uh, primary school in Brazil, the city, almost 800,000 students. And the mayor declared, uh, after the UPP, they improved the, the comparecimento, the, the attendance in the school and the performance of the students, incredible. And you have there another program, actually all the Brazil, but we began in my first term as the UPA, as uh, unit, the uh, prompt, uh, the emergence 24 hours in the health. We have there, we have there uh, many programs nowadays. Then, sorry? Popular restaurants for the, 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 the food, uh, 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 many projects, sportive projects. It's another Cidade de Deus. Fernando Meirelles, the director of City of God, loves the, this program. 
And uh, nowadays, this, the mayor is invested around uh, 60 million reais to reurbanization, many poorest area in Cidade de Deus. But Cidade de Deus is not the problem is the mobility because it's, 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 yes, it's so we have in, in Brazil, in Rio, that's the point. In Rio, we have poor area in amazing areas, then it's not the problem for the people, is not mobility, but the quality of life, change the quality of life, include security, urbanization, sanitation, house, etc. And you have the majority of people, poor people, the problem of distance, the problem of mobility. That's the pro the program uh, we, 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 we did, the mobility, and we, we have subsidies for the, 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 these people. In the case of Cidade de Deus, the problem is uh, violence and lack of many problems, the social problem. Nowadays, it's different. Okay. Uh, one more question, maybe from the back, up there. Um, this is to Sergio Cabra, Governor State of Rio. Um, Brazil's public sector received 1 billion reals in 2010. However, education relative to tax revenue is poor. Airports are overcrowded. What can be done to make public services in Brazil more efficient, in particular in cities? And the efficiency about the public, public sector. sector. Public sector. Uh, this is, 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 is that's the good question. It's our challenge uh, to to improve the quality of the public service in many areas. In education, we have a big challenge to because you have a, a constitution in our country is so generous for the people. So wonderful. I, I think it's some countries in the world has uh, an obligation like a federal government, like the governments have in Brazil for the education and for the health, for example. It's universal. All the people have right to all the service. But the problem is the budget or corruption or uh, no, no good quality of management. Uh, but nowadays, we, we, it's my, my feeling, my feeling, I used to eight, 16 years like uh, uh, parliament, senator, state president of state representative house, and I, I am in the second term. I was elected the last November, last October, the first ballot of 7% of the population. Uh, I think the, the population in Brazil is, is, is changed the view about the, the quality of management of the public service. The demand of the quality is, is bigger than some years ago because we have democracy, we have free press. In our case, we put in our management, my experience, uh, my chief of staff is here, my secretary of uh, sport is here, my secretary of foreign affairs is here, and uh, 
Consul General of UK is here. He, she can uh, say yes or not. It, we put the management, quality of management in, in the public service and goals and targets and uh, uh, we, we have uh, uh, metas, goals, we have goals. And security, we pay bonds for the police if the homicide down. Uh, for example, the, the, the violence in the police in Rio, unfortunately, even now, is so hard. Then we have to change the, 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 the mentality of the police. And many homicides, the, uh, the, the reason was, how can I say, it's very, it's a sophism, it's auto de resistência. Uh, it's a, it's a resistance, the, the, the police. Resistance, how? How? And uh, the, when I, I, my inauguration, January 2007, my first term, the UN, the right humans, watch, visit me to look, Mr. Governor. It's an absurd, because you have in Brazil, in Rio, a number absurd of resistance. What, what is this? And I, I took my team and stood, and in the, one of the goals is if you down the out of resistance, you include in the bonds of the, for the police. It's the opposite of violence. Then we, we, we have in, in the, the example of security, but we can offer for you in many another public service. The education, for example, in this moment, we have a huge program to pay bonds for the performance of the professor. Uh, and the, we have improved, of course, the, like the professor, professor told, we have to combine the social and the money, because without money, we, we can make the, 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 the programs. Uh, we got, Rio de Janeiro was the first in South America, got the investment grade from Standard & Poor's. It's the first subnational uh, state, subnational government in South America to go to the Standard & Poor's. And a few weeks ago, Standard & Poor's renewed the, the investment grade for us. Then uh, I think it's, it's very important the management, uh, to, to put the mind to management and uh, to renew all the, the machine, the public machine, and more professional, more professional. It's a, it's a, it's a big fight because you have in Brazil, I think in India, in, in other countries, uh, I don't know if, uh, for example, in, when the, 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 the labor part left and when the Tories and liberal uh, uh, is in the power, I think, I think is a few number of uh, uh, cargos, positions, positions change. Because the professional structure uh, in Brazil, we have a, a lot of uh, uh, positions change the party. Oh my God! You have to put. Uh, it's, a, it's a crazy. And we, more professional, less corruption. More efficient, more professional. Less efficient, more positions. The party. Oh, put put 
X, put Y, put. It's not a good. Uh, that's my vision. Okay. Um, no. This was a very, yeah. a very insightful uh, night. Um, there are still probably 25 questions, 25 hands in, in, in air, but uh, we are 20 minutes late. Uh, and so I want to thank the panelists uh, for all the insights, and thank you for coming. <laughs>